I don't think Silicon Valley is well equipped to take advantage of this trend. Silicon Valley was very well equipped to take advantage of mobile, SaaS, you know, uh, even blockchain and crypto. But I think here we have a situation where, frankly, the problems that the emerging middle class has are just not the problems people here have. And so there's a big relatability problem. Then I think the question is, well, how, are, how is the emerging middle class going to be served? It could actually be that not by U.S. companies, right? So I think as soon as um, you know, TikTok came out, I think there was this realization that it's possible that there's a massive social network that doesn't have to operate by U.S. rules. Hi, I'm Dana Yao, your host on the Emerging Markets Tech Startups podcast. While traveling to over 90 countries, I was inspired by the entrepreneurial spirit across startup communities in Africa, Latin America, Asia, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe. On the show, we bring you stories from entrepreneurs, startup ecosystem innovators, and investors. We discuss what makes these markets culturally and historically unique, local trends, local challenges consumers and founders face, and the opportunities. Let's get started. Hey, Mark, it's so good to have you on the Emerging Markets Startups Podcast. I could not think of a better person than you to talk about emerging markets, especially from Silicon Valley. So we're excited to learn from you today. Why don't you share with the crowd a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is Mark Heinen. I um, am currently Vice President of Business Development at Stellar Development Foundation, which is the organization that runs the Stellar Network for cross-border payments. Um, I started my career uh, actually founding a company in London uh, with, in 1999, 2000, uh, which very quickly brought me to India. I um, found um, that I really needed to build a team in India and spent three months a year for about six years living in Gurgaon outside Delhi. And that really opened my mind and uh, my heart to, you know, the the technical gap, the digital divide between um, you know, people I was coming across in India and people I would come across in London. And so when I um, <clears throat> sold that company in 2006 and joined Google, I actually um, focused a lot on emerging market projects, specifically mapping to begin with. I was working on Google Maps and helped launch Google Maps in India and Pakistan and in emerging markets. Um, and then when I joined Facebook in 2010, focused on emerging market projects there. And then when I left Facebook, did a couple of startups, but most recently Pageway, which is focused on solving the credit problem in emerging markets. Wow. You got bit by the travel or the emerging markets bug like I did when I went to India a couple of years ago as well. For you, what was the turning point? Was there something that happened in India? Was it you just saw so much potential? Yeah, I think... Um, Couple of turning points. I mean, I think um, when I was in India, when I was in India, I actually signed a lease, which involved uh, you know sitting outside uh, a courthouse in Gurgaon and having someone type up our lease and then physically signing and stamping it. This is a lease for a home, or what do you mean? Oh, sorry, this is for our office. <laughs> okay. And then, and then we we basically bought the lease into a large room uh, in the courthouse, and all that was in that room was a webcam and someone with a laptop. Who would then take a photo of the of the lease, and so it just showed how uh, you know obviously development happens in different stages, and uh, really struck by you know that um, I think it's a William Gibson quote you know the future is here it's just not evenly distributed. There's just so much potential to actually um, have people advance, and especially with the internet, uh, you know people not having access to certain tools is, seemed like such a um, big injustice to me, uh, you know, I think considering how difficult it is just to um, get stuff done day to day, um, 
without these tools that we take for granted. And you know, when it came to joining Google and I saw what happened was happening with Android, I was really excited about the fact that it's possible that there's a $100 smartphone out there at some point, or maybe a $50 smartphone that all these people can use to do the things they need to do day to day. Um, at that point, this person would not be typing up a lease anymore on a blanket outside of um, you know, the courthouse. And um, you know, I'm very excited about that. Although you know, what we found out was the smartphone prices did not decrease. And in fact, they increased the relationship between digital access and financial access. And you actually need to solve the financial access problem, first of all, to help people get a smartphone and then to help them transact on the smartphone. And a lot of my work in the last couple of years has been around that problem. When you draw it out like that, it seems like a linear path. Like, yeah, that makes sense. When you realize Andrew didn't, wasn't making the phone prices cheaper, even though it should have, you started going into the loan space for phones. Let's first talk about some of the trends you're seeing in emerging markets. You've had a wealth of experience, you said, since 1999, 20 plus years. One really important trend is um, the digitization of daily transactions, right? So I think when it comes to people in emerging markets who are going through their day-to-day lives and uh, you know, basically starting to, for example, transact in Kenya to buy things, the fact that that's now happening on M-Pesa, which is effectively a digital medium, is really important because people are used to then using their phones to do their daily transactions. And uh, I actually think that is a important development because people look to their phones to then do more and more. And so I call this the mobile multiplier. People are actually going to be shifting more and more of their day-to-day life to their smartphones and straight to their smartphones. Another multiplier is basically the fact that the emerging middle class is growing. The middle class is now bigger than it's ever been before uh, in the history of humanity. And emerging market middle class is growing faster than the entirety of the U.S. middle class per year. 200 million odd people are joining the, the emerging middle class per year, which obviously is bigger than the U.S. middle class. And so a lot of times when people are thinking of developing new products, they think of the canonical person in a suburban home in the US and would they use this? And I actually think what they should be thinking of is the canonical person in you know, South Africa or um, Nigeria or Indonesia who's going to work with his mobile device on um, a scooter and would they use this, right? I think that's actually probably a better frame of mind when we're thinking about what's happening in the world today. And then I think finally, uh, another broad trend is more and more people are looking to use one app to do multiple things. And I think that that basically offers the opportunity for embedded finance. Um, you know, I think Gojek, for example, providing the ability to do a lot of different things within their app behind, beyond just, um, you know, ride sharing. And so the rise of a super app, but also the rise of the ability for people to embed financial services through retailers or through other trusted parties. I mean, even Google's getting in on this with their Google Pay app, where you can now do a lot of things in the Google Pay app that you normally wouldn't do. And your relationship, your financial relationship might actually be with Google rather than explicitly with a bank. And I guess I'll just say one final thing, which is I feel uh, another big trend is that the um, it's just getting more common for entrepreneurs to get social validation in emerging markets these days. Uh, the social validation is a really big thing. And obviously there's a big ethos around it here in Silicon Valley, but you can't take that for granted. And so it, it's really significant that, for example, Paystack got acquired by Stripe and that there are these success cases in these places because it gives 
motivation to really talented people to make things happen. And I think with Stellar, I meet founders all the time in emerging markets. And of course with Next Billion Advisors as well. And I think I, what I'm seeing is a higher degree of motivation, um, you know, willing to stick it out because inevitably things always, uh, things are unexpected to happen and there's always rough patches and you really need that validation to stick things out. You've packed so much insight. I, I, I need to unpack this a bit. The emerging middle class, this is something people don't realize until they look at the numbers. I mean, you brought up the 200 million. I was speaking to an ecosystem leader on startups in Pakistan, and she was like, the Pakistani middle class is growing tremendously. And this almost feels like a secret that people like you and I share, but people are so focused today on the revenue potential based on how the world is carved out today. Right. A lot of the revenue is still in the developed markets, but people are not seeing the potential, but like the stuff that you've been working on is getting ahead of that curve. I think one of the problems is I don't think Silicon Valley is well equipped to take advantage of this trend. Silicon Valley was very well equipped to take advantage of mobile, SaaS, you know, uh, even blockchain and crypto. You know, you have a lot of a great combination of talent and know-how and capital here to allocate towards that. But I think here we have a situation where, frankly, the problems that the emerging middle class has are just not the problems people here have. And so there's a big relatability problem. Then I think the question is, well, how, are, how is the emerging middle class going to be served? It could actually be that not by U.S. companies, right? So I think as soon as um, you know TikTok came out, I think there was this realization that it's possible that there's a massive social network that doesn't have to operate by U.S. rules. It could very well be that the dominant apps in these for these people, which might, you know, the, emerge, the middle class project to be 4 billion in 2021, right? About five people every um, second are entering the middle class. It could be that in five, 10 years, um, you know, things look very different where, um, you know, maybe some version of broken up Facebook is serving people in some way, but there's also um, a whole bunch of other, um, you know, uh, apps out there that, that are not, that don't involve Silicon Valley that are actually, um, you know, catering to this group. Silicon Valley should get smart. They should get smart on the space. Um, they should have, you know, scouts in all these places. Uh, and, you know, I think now I see Sequoia and other people starting to do that, uh, which I think is a good promising thing. I think the people who will get smart and who will invest in these companies are going to do extremely well. And in the case of India, I would argue with Flipkart and others, some have done incredibly well already. But I think we're just at the very beginning of this. If not Silicon Valley, who is it? One region, like the thing that comes to mind is China. You see the Alibaba's, the Tencent's of the world, investing in small startups, buying out companies. Uh, Alibaba in 2018 bought out uh, one of the largest e-commerce companies in Pakistan. Are they the ones that see the trends because they were an emerging market a little less than 10, 15 years ago? Or do you think it's going to be this disparate thing where each major market, let's say Singapore in that region, they have their Gojeks, their Grabs. In LATAM, you have the Mercado Libres. But I think one thing that I can definitely see happening is that there are regional um, you know, folks that do really well in each of these places um, because you have some level of commonality um, across the region. So I, I can think of uh, you know, Rappi in Latin America or um, you know, Gojek or Grab in Southeast Asia um, and I can even think of, um, you know, frankly, some of these regional African apps, which I think are at very early stages now, 
um, you know, they all have um, the potential to continue to grow through the power of, you know, referrals and network effects and actually, um, you know, build a brand that's hard to dislodge. And I think it's very likely that these things will grow very regionally, um, which I think is um, probably fairly um, positive. Uh, I don't think it's a given unless something dramatic happens that the Silicon Valley tools will be the default tools that everyone uses. And that sort of is my vision for the world. Similar to you is this idea that tech will solve the inequity problem. And you talked about this injustice and that's exactly how I feel. The quote that was similar to yours is, talent is distributed equally, but opportunities is not. And the fact that this is unfurling before our eyes, the Gojex probably growing to more dominance than some of the other Silicon Valley players is sort of the dream and it's happening. And I feel like I asked you this question and we're like, oh, we don't know what the vision is, but it's already here. And each of these ecosystems are only going to go stronger. I was talking to someone from Myanmar yesterday. It starts with that one company that gets really big. So in the US, the example is like the PayPal mafia. In LATAM, it's the Mercado Libre. And then that becomes a multiplier effect where the founders then start investing in other startups, which gives validity to those startups to allow them to grow really fast to scale. They provide mentorship as well. So it's only going to get stronger from here. And that... I don't know. I'm just coming to this realization and it's so exciting. The other thing I see happening is a lot of these early startups are actually building infrastructure, which is then going to be used by later startups, right? And I think Paystack is, but I think there is, uh, you know, clearly one of the characteristics in these emerging markets is you can't rely on, for example, payments infrastructure being readily available for real-time payments, digital payments, et cetera. And so a lot of times, you know, African startups and other startups have to build that from scratch. And I think, uh, you know, if the Stellar Network, for example, grows as we expect it to, and it will be available for everyone to do real-time cross-border payments and hold digital assets anywhere in the world, over time, uh, you know, that infrastructure will help more companies grow and it'll be easier. Um, and I think what's exciting is that, uh, you know, even the super apps will enable other businesses to grow on top of them. Um, I think you always... When thinking about these things, you always get to a point where you wonder, is that going to result in a world where there are just like very few winners and just a lot of people who are not really sharing in those spoils? Um, we really want there to be a lot of winners out there to, to seize the potential of this emerging middle class. But in, in every situation, I think we're looking at hopefully, like you were talking about, getting more opportunity to more people. See, tech has done grow the pie even larger. Like you gave the example of infrastructure and pay stack. I was talking to someone from Yoko, uh, the head of expansion there, Marcelo, and he was saying, you know, us being able to provide this foundation, enable small businesses to scale themselves. PayPal was one of the enablers for eBay to take off and everyone selling on that platform brought up a really good point on the infrastructure side. You co-founded Pagejoy or you are sort of the major distinctions on operating a startup for emerging markets from Silicon Valley? Yeah, you have the classic, uh, you know, solipsism problem. You have the problem where you, you don't understand the real needs of the people that are there and you basically have to um, figure those out. And the solution that I've seen work well has been basically having a fairly decentralized structure where you have a lot of people on the ground in country um, who give you a lot of data and a lot of feedback 
and you have culturally a certain level of humility that you don't know everything, um, which is frankly, in some cases, really hard to hire for. A great example of that is Uber did not accept cash in India, right? Because they thought, you know, the uh, the people they want use credit cards and over time more people will have credit cards and that's just a better way to do it. Whereas, and that actually provided an opening for other people, for, for a local competitor to come in. Cola. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's a um, classic example. Another classic example is Facebook thought feature phones didn't matter um, for the longest time. Um, and then finally realized they did and there's a solution to the performance problems with, with Snap2 and that obviously resulted in acquisition and, and them figuring that out. Um, and then, you know, famously, they also had a lot of people all over the place to, to help understand what's happening on the ground. So I think having a fairly distributed model operationally is really important if you're going to be operating out of Silicon Valley. I mean, there are definitely a lot of benefits to operating out of Silicon Valley. And if there are, for example, founders listening to this who are now based in, you know, uh, Lagos or Jakarta or, or Bangalore and are wondering, do they need to move? There are clear benefits in terms of fundraising being here. And there are also clear benefits in terms of talent, sort of getting to know other people with know-how, people who have done this before. When fundraising, uh, they often want to see a certain type of company and it's easier to reference if you're actually based here and if you're able to find a way to incorporate here. However, I think there are clear limitations. And I, I think ultimately what um, I think happens is, um, you know, the people who are operating out of Silicon Valley have a great global view. They try to conquer many markets. Ultimately, they often narrow down to a few markets and they focus on those markets and make sure those markets are fantastic because you simply can't do everything at once. And I would argue, um, you know, any of the emerging market focused companies like Tala, Branch, Payjoy, Juvo, any of those companies um, are, you know, probably started with a longer list of, of, of countries rather than they're on right now. And that's fair, probably a healthy thing because you can only go so fast. Of those companies you listed, those are one of, well, a few of the most well-known to operate out of Silicon Valley and be inherently providing for uh, emerging market consumers. Is, what's your general assessment, how well they've done versus other Bay Area companies in terms of what, and also compared to what investors had expected? I think on the whole, those companies have done very well. Um, I think, you know, when you benchmark against other Bay Area companies, I think you just have this very wide distribution of outcomes in the Bay Area, right? We talk about the next snowflake, right? That's the sort of the latest hotness, like who, who's going to actually get that success? I don't know. If, I don't think it's very healthy to um, think about um, that necessarily, because ultimately um, everyone's trying to solve different problems. But I think when you just think of, um, you know, from a your rubric, if your rubric is, I want to solve an interesting problem that has real impact on people's lives. I want to have it um, be financially, um, you know, self-sustaining and also grow at the pace that is interesting for VCs. So with a possible 10x outcome, I think, you know, those companies or at least a subset of those companies are definitely um, in a position to do that, which I think is fantastic. Because I think really what it comes down to is, um, you know, you right now, um, it's going to probably be very hard for a lot of companies in the emerging markets to raise the money to get to the 10x outcome. Um, and so I think these companies in the Bay Area are filling that need to some extent. So is that sort of the best practices 
when talking to investors, it's kind of playing to the investors that not just care about the hundred X revenue, but also the societal impact. Like what were you seeing as the best practices when you had to help raise round for KJOY and the, the other companies? I mean, I should just be very clear. VCs care about scale and outcome uh, more than impact. I think a lot of, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I think there are, but there are uh, VCs and uh, core innovation capital, which invested in Pedro is one of them that, you know, actively um, promote the, the concept of um, financial inclusion as, as being one of the things they're, they're focused on. So I think it's really a down to the motivations of the individual VCs you're looking at. I think when I think of, um, you know, how someone has to position themselves and with Next Billion Advisors, we help a lot of founders who are um, actually trying to raise money in the Bay Area and trying to figure out how to position. Uh, you know, I think there are really those, those two fundamental things you need to address no matter what, which is, do you have a big addressable market? And do you have uh, the team and the strategy to execute on that better than anyone else? Uh, and I think you need to do that no matter what, um, no matter how you're raising. Now, I think if you are then um, have a very inspiring story, I think VCs will aggregate to that for a number of reasons. And one of those reasons is likely that they know you'll be able to hire some great people because people love um, joining companies that are truly changing the world and not just talking about it. So. Um, you know, I think that's generally what we advise people we work with at Next Billion Advisors. Big addressable market. Do these investors usually have, oh, it has to be north of 200 million. There's only so many countries that are north of 200 million. Well, I think that's a really good point. I think one insight is it's good to think of yourself regionally or outside of your home market. It's always good to prove yourself in your home market, but it's really important to make sure that what you're building can scale into multiple markets um, because you want to make sure that you are, um, you know, thinking big enough to make this an interesting investment proposition. And also, you know, I think one of the benefits of, you know, technology and of actually having um, apps and, uh, you know, uh, web applications that can actually cross boundaries is you, you can get into new markets fairly quickly and learn from those markets. And I think it's important if you want to go the fundraising route to use that capital to expand and build that, you know, market position. And I think that's something that um, in my experience, um, you know, I think the default for a lot of founders is to show something is working at a fairly small scale and just to keep focusing on making it great at that very small scale, which I think is very healthy. But I think to be a venture back founder, often you need to then do that second thing, which is also uh, make it workable in a, at a bigger addressable market. Do you think these investors almost um, expect the same pace of growth? Or do you think with emerging market startups, they're like, oh, we understand maybe the margin isn't as high, so we're willing to accept, I don't know, 10% less, or the expectation is the same? I think that's a really good question. I think there is this fundamental question, which is, um, you know, is the 10x um, valuation bump expectation healthy, right? Uh, or does it force founders to actually grow too quickly? And all emerging markets, it, is that really the right number to be looking at? Or if it's not realistic because you have these like infrastructure problems that we were talking about previously, does that just create weird a weird dynamic between investor and founder? And I think that's a really solid question. 
think ultimately, um, I see the ability for new investors to emerge who bring a lot of local knowledge and who actually have slightly different expectations who are probably gonna ultimately back the winners. Um, and I think ultimately it'll just come down to backing the entrepreneurs that um, show the grit to overcome obstacles, but it might not be as cut and dry as a 10X outcome. Well, this has been nothing short, but fascinating. Are there any other thoughts you wanted to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think, uh, so first thing I will say is, um, you know, I think it's always smart to, um, you know, be humble in the face of big changes. And I consider this coming wave of sort of the emerging middle class to be a massive change. And so, um, you know, I think my um, suggestion is to always listen and um, try to understand what's actually happening. And especially if anyone's listening to this from Silicon Valley as an angel investor or a, a more traditional investor, you know, really take seriously the entrepreneurs you're seeing from emerging markets and, um, you know, listen to what they're, how they're explaining the market works. Um, I think the second thing I'll say is if you're a founder and you're interested in getting advice, uh, please check out Next Billion Advisors. That's nextbillion.com without any of the vowels. Um, and you can see um, a number of advisors, um, including Diana and I, who can help um, you get access to the know-how and capital of Silicon Valley. Um, we can sort of serve as um, the go-between and, and um, interpreters um, for those, those worlds. And then I think I'll just finally say, you know, we haven't talked a little bit, we haven't talked very much about blockchain and crypto. You know, I think it's gotten a reputation for, um, you know, being something that is either used to scam people or where very well people can hedge um, you know, their other investments. I think 20 years from now, um, blockchain and crypto will really be seen more as a democratizing force for finance um, because it's one of the only things that can actually bring mainstream finance into, um, you know, everyone over to everyone in the world through mobile devices. So basically building a globally interoperable M-Pesa is, is really exciting. I think we're going to see a lot of um, movement in this space next year. Um, and I'm so happy to see the momentum. And if anyone wants to reach out to me and talk more about Stellar or about that space in general, I'm more than happy to talk about it. On the blockchain portion, I was telling folks that in some markets, they're actually a bit more advanced on using it actually in their day-to-day, -day, like you see the examples of Venezuela, where because they can't depend on their currency, they've had to use something external and they couldn't even depend on the U.S. currency because um, the country locally has tried to prevent that. So you are, again, ahead of the curve, as always, with emerging markets, blockchain, uh, technology 20 years ago. So Mark, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. And we just have to keep following you because it looks like that's uh, where the next thing is going to be in 20 years. Leave me a comment in the reviews or find me on Twitter at Diana Yao. Until next time, 